You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 33, Don't Choke, Why We Sometimes Fail Under Pressure. Today we have Sian Baylock. She's a cognitive scientist and the president of Barnard College at Columbia University. And she has studied a very interesting phenomenon that I think everybody can relate to, which is when you choke under pressure. When the time comes to really perform, you don't do so well. Uh, and uh, Dr. Baylock has studied this phenomenon a lot, and today we're going to talk about it. Now, before we get started, um, I think that understanding how this works re- relies on some fundamental cognitive science concepts, and I think our listeners uh, would benefit from hearing a bit about that. So do you want to tell our listeners a bit about the relationship between practice uh, and deliberative cognitive thinking and how we kind of lose consciousness of what we're doing as we practice? Well, as we get better and better at what we do, oftentimes we don't have to think about the step-by-step processes of it. Just think about what happens when you shuffle down the stairs. You're not thinking about exactly what your legs are doing. You can just do it. And that happens as we um, become better at all sorts of skills, from public speaking to hitting a tennis ball. Right. So we find that when we're uh, at, when you get very well practiced at something, you can sometimes even think about something else while you're doing it, right? Sure. It's kind of like if you um, drive home the same way every day, you often aren't thinking about exactly how you're getting home. Oftentimes you just end up home because you can make the turns and um, find your way there without thinking about the step-by-step details of what you're doing. And this is really powerful, isn't it? Because it allows you to um, sort of offload your high-level cognitive thinking to, you know, habit and that kind of thing so you can plan and do other things, right? What makes it so powerful is that you can then focus on um, other aspects of what you're doing, the strategy. If you're playing the piano, for example, and you don't have to focus on the finger movements, you can focus on um, how you're interpreting the melody, on um, aspects that really make the quality of the performance exceptional. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that if we learned how to type or learned how to drive. At first, it seemed impossible, and you had to think about every single thing. But uh, after a while, you think about totally different things. Right. Um, but even though we're very practiced at driving, um, we still modulate our attention in sort of hairy situations. So think about what happens when you get lost. What's one of the first things you do if you're driving and you get lost? I uh, try to look around and try to figure out where I am and orient and where think about where I might have made a wrong turn or something. Yeah, and you also turned on the radio oftentimes, right? Oh, right. <laughs> um, right. And that's a really good example of sort of helping yourself, giving yourself more ability to focus, not on the radio, but on what you're, where you're trying to go. Great. And now you wrote a whole book about this called Choke. Um, you want to tell us what choking is? Yeah, I think we all experience choking moments. Um, What's really important is that uh, choking is not just normal performance ups and downs. We all have those. What I'm talking about is worse performance than accepted, um, than, than usual, given your skill level, precisely because you're worried about the situation or there's added anxiety or pressure to perform well. Um, And this can happen in all sorts of situations. It can happen on the highest Olympic stage or in a job interview, but it can also happen in a very simple situation, like when you're in an elevator and trying to introduce yourself to to someone in there um, and you stutter on your words. Yeah. How did you how did you get into this research area? Well, as a student um, and an athlete, I was an athlete growing up. I was struck by the fact that there was lots of 
psychology research about how people got good at what they do and very little about why people sometimes don't perform up to their potential. So a little bit was me search, understanding my own self, but a lot of it was just um, noticing that people weren't asking the question about why people sometimes perform poorly in those situations where ironically they want to perform at their best. Yeah, I know I felt that when I defended my master's thesis. I, I was a, you know, a, an accomplished stage actor, a lot of experience, didn't have any stage fright. But I found when I went up to defend my thesis, I was uh, stumbling over my words in a way that I almost never did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens to all of us, which is why I think, you know, it's a concept that everyone's interested in. Yeah. So, okay. So what are the conditions uh, that people choke under? Oftentimes when there's something riding on a performance, um, either there's a consequence in, for example, taking a test, you want a good grade, um, but it's not just that sort of outcome. Um, oftentimes it has to do with worry, you're worried about how other people will evaluate you or other people will feel about you. Um, when all eyes are on us, that can be a great way to induce pressure. So, okay, so if somebody's watch, if people are watching, Okay, then we're worried about what they think of us and that kind of thing. Um, but you could probably also choke in any any time when the stakes are high, even if nobody's watching. If you're yes. maybe you know alone trying to do surgery on yourself in the wild or something like that. <laughs> yeah, although I will say that that expectation and evaluation from others turns out to be very important um, because when we have to. Um, perform a task and also worry about what others are thinking about us, that's an overload. Okay. And you said that it causes worry. So when people worry, how does worry uh, affect our performance? When we um, worry, we change how we perform. And one of the ways that we change it is often we start paying too much attention to what we're doing. So we disrupt the details. Uh, when you're worried about what others are thinking, um, the consequences of the situation, you often try and control what you're doing. And um, when you're well-practiced at something, that control can actually backfire. Okay, so you've used the term, uh, I think, paralysis by analysis. Is that right? Yeah, it's this over-attention to detail. Right. So we've got a practiced task and we know how to do it like without thinking about it. And then when we think about it, that interrupts the the uh, well-practiced task. Is that right? Well, if you do something that it operates so quickly, you don't think about every step of it. Um, when you have to call it back into conscious awareness, it slows it down and it provides this opportunity for error that wasn't there before. Okay. So I guess like if, um, could people make themselves choke? Like if they were trying to pay attention to every finger movement when they're typing or something like that? Yeah. And it's a great way to make someone else choke as well. You know, you just ask them, um, you know, what they're doing with their elbow as they swing the golf club, something you wouldn't normally pay attention to. All of a sudden you start paying attention to, it can disrupt you. Now, do, do sports trainers know this? I mean, do they, do they like ever screw up by asking their athletes to pay attention and it makes performance worse, or are they wise to this? <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, with my book, Choke, and the research on this topic, um, people who train and work with athletes and even coaches know this as well. Um, you know, the key is to be able to, um, in that moment in the game, um, separate yourself or prevent yourself from that overattention. And coaches use all sorts of strategies, right? Um, getting their players to focus on a couple key 
words or key skills they want them to perform, anything to take their mind off of the intense pressure in the moment. Okay. So talking like at a, at a cognitive level, um, in terms of like the information in the brain, beliefs and all that kind of stuff, what aspects are involved? Like, is there a working memory component or, or what's happening under the hood a little bit? Yeah. So I often talk about our frontal cortex, that front part of the brain that controls everything that often that we do and that we attend to. Um, And we only have the ability to pay attention to so many things at once. Um, And that's one of the reasons as we get good at things, um, they leave that front part of the brain in the same way. We're not focusing on every detail. Um, And in those moments when we um, are worried and we start trying to control our performance, um, our brains actually function differently. We bring those details back into conscious awareness and there's an overload. And is it, is it an overload of working memory in particular? Yeah, this is our um, ability to focus on a few things at once, yeah. Yeah, okay, so I think a lot of, you know, people who know about working memory tend to think about it in terms of, like, if you're solving a math problem, you have to keep, you know, operations in mind or something like that. But uh, working memory, is that also related to physical performance and things like sports? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's, um, I think we often make this distinction between mental performance and physical performance and um you know they're all happening in the brain to a certain extent or start are starting there um so um definitely i mean you can focus too much on something that we consider more mental like raising your hand to ask a question or the dissertation that you're defending um just as much as you can focus on too much on how you're kicking the soccer ball Hmm, okay so something i find a little strange about this whole thing is that we do it at all it seems that it's kind of maladaptive, right? So why would we, when it matters the most, why would we perform, why would we like sabotage ourselves? Doesn't it seem like evolution would have weeded that out? Do you have any ideas about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think one of the reasons why we're so interested in sports is because anything can happen, right? I mean, if it was just the ones with the highest skill were always going to perform the best, we wouldn't tune in to watch any championship game. Um, there's an element of unpredictability, and that comes a lot from the psychology. And um, there are times when we do need to pay attention to what we're doing when we're just learning a skill. Um, and so it's really important to focus on every aspect of what we're doing. Um, but that ability to change, to alter how we're paying attention to what we're doing is one of the hallmarks of getting really skilled. Right. And then, But after we're really good, we will revert back to that frontal processing or whatever and, and screw ourselves up. And it, I mean, it seems to be kind of a human universal. And it's interesting that it's it's still there. Do you know what I'm getting at? <laughs> I mean, first of all, pressures have changed, right? Um, you know, the idea that you would sit for a test or that, um, you know, there's money writing on your performance um, or the kinds of tasks you're performing are more complicated than when we were just trying to scurry up the tree to get away from the lion. Um, so certainly what we're doing has changed. Um, but not everyone does it all the time, right? Which is why it's so interesting. And not everyone does it in the same situations, right? So you might choke in, a, in an athletic task and not when taking a test or vice versa. Um, and the key is to how, the key is how you regulate your um, psychology, how you regulate what you're focusing on um, to perform at your best. Right. I, now, I think some people might be thinking of uh, Gladwell's book, Blink, which I think some people have said overstated the case of just going with your gut and your learning. But uh, concentration 
does help sometimes, right? Yeah. And in practice, anytime you want to change a skill um, and certainly concentrating on certain things that can be useful, the strategy, where you want the ball to end up. Um, but what my research and others have shown is that when you're focusing on those step-by-step aspects of what you're doing in a well-practiced task, it can really mess you up. Great. Well, let's get into some strategies to help us avoid choking. What are some things people can do? I think one of the most basic points that uh, people often forget is that you have to practice under the conditions you're going to perform under. Um, you know, many people have study for the test in their room, taking breaks or um, look over their notes to give a speech. And then it's completely different when they're sitting for the time test, when everyone is watching them or when all eyes are on you when you're trying to um, hit that free throw, you know, in the last minutes of the game. So something that um, researchers have shown, I know sports psychologists talk a lot about this, is really closing that gap between training and competition, thinking about what you can do in practice that mimic the kinds of situations you're going to feel when everyone's watching. Um, One thing I think is really important in youth sports is oftentimes the parents don't come to practice, but they come to the meet or the match. You can imagine the change in pressure having those who you want to impress most there in just one situation. Um, So if you're going to come to watch your kid play, you should probably be there to practice or two as well. Get them used to what they're going to feel when all eyes are on them. Oh, that's that's interesting. And I think I read in some uh, an interview of yours that you mentioned that Jack Nicholas focused on his pinky toe. (laughs) Can you use your attention to avoid choking too? Yeah, I mean, I think... We often think about this idea that our thought processes are not under our control. And one of the points that I talk about is you have to practice how you think, just like practicing a muscle. Um, And so um, if the idea is that you, when the pressure is on, start trying to control everything you're doing and that disrupts you, how do you prevent yourself from doing that? So singing a song, focusing on the outcome, one swing thought, where you want the ball to land, one particular strategy, anything that helps prevent you from delving into that over-attention the de- to the details of performance. Yeah, so there's something strange about that I don't, I don't understand. Because if you're singing a song, aren't you occupying those working memory slots that your skill needs? Well, but the idea is that at that high level, your skill is just running off outside of conscious awareness. So you don't necessarily need that. Oh, okay, okay. So it's not that it's not that taking up working memory... Is, is taking it from the practice skill. It's just that when you put skill-related things in the working memory, the deliberative processing starts. Exactly. Um, and it could be certain times, right? So maybe right when you're starting the game and singing the song, but then you get into it and you start thinking about strategy. Um, you know, I think it's not an all or nothing. But at those particular points, when you might feel this um, desire to focus too much on what's going on, these are good techniques you can use. Now, I know from my own research um, in imagination that visualization can help a lot with things like sports, right? So I read one study that showed when people were asked to visualize the putt going in in a golf game, it increased their accuracy by um, almost 30%, and this has been found in many sports. Um, so what's the difference here? Why is it that focus, like certain kinds of visualization can help, but uh, you know, thinking about what you're doing too much sometimes hurts. Can you characterize what the difference is? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the key is what's happening during that visualization, right? So um, maybe you're you're thinking about where the ball lands or at the highest level, just the stroke that you're hitting rather than visualizing exactly how your arm or your, um, your wrist is bending. And I would guess that when most high-level athletes are visualizing themselves succeeding, they're at that higher level in terms of what they're thinking. Oh, okay. That that makes that makes sense because uh, I'm I'm learning to play squash, and my coach tells me to always keep my eye on the ball and like focus on pain, like always looking at the ball. And um, yeah, and I think that's great, right? I mean, it's you're not. He's trying to get you to that outcome, right? The ball is the outcome there. Yeah. Um, for our listeners, if you don't play squash, squash balls are um, indicated by the number of number and color of dots on the ball, and they're very small. Uh, and my coach tells me to. Try to look at the ball so closely that you're trying to make out as though you're trying to make out how many dots are on the ball as it's flying around the room. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about physical activities. Um, what about more abstract skills like mathematics? Yeah, I mean, so there are certain uh, skills that do require a lot of working memory and a lot of focus at all times. And the idea is that not that you choke differently if you have a pencil in your hand versus a golf club. Um, but just that um, the, the types of things that will impact your performance can change. So um, when you're worried, uh, that is enough to disrupt a skill that requires a lot of working memory to begin with. Yeah. And you have done some work showing about um, in educational contexts, mimicking, uh, mimicking the teachers and particularly same-sex adults. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, um, you know, even for those who are interested in sports or those who are just interested in school to understand that um, choking occurs across all different sorts of situations. And certainly it can, it can occur when all eyes are on you. But, um, you know, anxiety about wanting to perform well or even doubts about your ability to perform in a way is a type of choking, right? It interferes with your ability to perform at your best. Um, and we've shown that when young kids are aware of stereotypes about how they should perform, so one, that girls are not as good at boys at math, um, that can actually create anxiety in young girls and affect their ability to learn and perform math. And again, these worries, um, you know, interfere with their ability to focus on what's important. What if the teacher thems themselves is, are not confident about what they're teaching? Can that affect the children's anxiety about the subject? I think it's a little bit counterintuitive that even that a teacher of, say, first grade would be worried about, um, you know, their ability to do first grade math. But um, what we've shown is that especially teachers in elementary school are very anxious about math. Um, mm. And they tend to be mostly women. And young girls in their classes pick up on that anxiety. And it's not necessarily about how they're teaching, but even the idea that when you're anxious about something, you don't want to spend as much time doing it. Um, so teachers who are worried about their own math skills spend less time teaching math throughout the day. They're more likely to um, not let students struggle with one of the ideas being that we think that creates anxiety in the teacher themselves. And we know that some struggle is good for learning. And so you put that together and kids in the classroom can pick up on how teachers are feeling and they pick up on their parents too. Um, we've also shown that when parents are anxious about about math, um, actually, the more they help their kids with their math homework, the worse the kid does. 
Um, and so that anxiety can have an effect in so many ways. Wow. So, so, the, so a teacher being confident about what they're teaching has kind of a direct effect on the out learning outcomes. Yeah. I mean, and it goes back to this idea that our mindset matters, whether we're the ones performing or those around us. And I think, you know, in this day and age when a lot of learning right now is happening in the home, um, when parents are being the teachers and parents are kids' longest and first teacher often, it's really important to think about how we're not only teaching the kid, but how we're teaching the parent. That is so much pressure. So how, <laughs> how can the parents and the teachers avoid this? Like, it, what if you're, what if one of our listeners is a teacher or a parent teaching their kids right now during COVID and they're anxious about math? What can they do? Yeah, I mean, first I would say that um, all of this is reversible, right? And so um, math is a particularly, I think, touchy subject because oftentimes we learned math as parents and I have a nine year old. So I'm in this too. Um, we learn math really differently than our kids are learning it. And so one thing is to figure out how the child is learning it, even communicating with the teacher. Um, I think one of the most important things right now is that teachers are talking to the parents about how they're teaching so that the teachers can work with the children um, and work with their kids. But if even if you don't understand the math and you're a parent, we know um, from several studies that parents expectations for their kids and the value they place in math for their kids really matters. So if you're confident in their ability to succeed, that's really important, even if you're not confident in your own ability to succeed. So you can take a little heart in that as a parent. And uh, how about like fun story problems? Do they help anything? Yeah. So um, we help do research on an app called Bedtime Math, which is free on iTunes and Android. And the idea being that um, we wanted to, we had a hypothesis that parents who are anxious about math really wouldn't engage as much with their kids around math, just like teachers in school. Um, and so we thought, what if we could put together an interaction that would allow parents and kids to engage in fun ways around math? Um, and so this bedtime math app and there's books, um, we three explored that. And what we showed was that parents, especially if they were anxious about math, um, just doing these story problems um, with their kids. And it's not the kids do it on their own. The parents talk about it with the kids. Um, their, their children learn more math across the school year. It doesn't have to be a bedtime. It's just this idea. And, you know, we don't even know, um, you know, bedtime math in general, this app, we don't think there's something so special about this app in particular, but it's just finding ways for parents and kids to engage around math content. And parents and kids tend to do this around reading, you know, bedtime stories, you do all sorts of things, um, but it's much less likely that parents do bedtime math. So if we can create some structured ways to talk about math um, with our kids, it really makes a difference. Okay. So um, how about stereotypes? Um, if People have stereotypes in mind. Can it affect their um, the, like their propensity to choke under pressure? Yeah, I mean, I think you know it, it all comes down to the to worried about how other people will see you and expectations they hold for you, and um, when you're worried that someone else is going to be evaluating you based on your gender group, your racial background. Um, how much money your family has, all of these things can create pressure to perform well. Um, and these, um, and we know that, for example, when you're a woman in a male-dominated field or you're trying to do something that no one like you has done before, just the idea that you're always being evaluated can create that kind of pressure. So what can an individual do to help fight these stereotype threats? 
Well, I mean, first, I think, you know, as a parent, for example, like I spend a lot of time pointing out to my nine-year-old daughter all the times where women are doing um, jobs and activities that you might stereotypically not think that they would do. Like, I think actually creating examples of people like you succeeding is really important because it gets rid of this idea that, um, you know, you would be the first or you couldn't do this because of your race or your gender or some reason around you. Um, also, just calling it out as the stereotypes being there and not actually um, valid can do a lot to um, undermine their effect. I think it's this realization. And, and something that relates to that is how we feel in a particular situation, we can change that, right? So um, I talk a lot about our physiological response when we walk into a situation where we might have to give a talk or start a game, um, that sweaty palms and beating heart is not necessarily a sign we're going to fail. It's actually a sign we're excited and ready to go. Um, and our heart is shunting blood to our brain so we can think and focus on the right things and not the wrong things. And we have research showing that just getting um, children and students in school to reevaluate, uh, reassess their physiological response can actually help them perform better. Oh, that's really interesting. I think I've heard something like that in um, like meditation advice, but I didn't know there were studies of it. Things like if you're, you know, feeling anxious, then you reinterpret it as excited. And if you're feeling depressed, you reinterpret it as relaxed because they're physiologically similar. Yes. Um, that's cool that there's actually, I didn't know there was actual studies showing that, that really works. <laughs> yeah, we've um, we've done some large scale studies, actually, my research group, um, looking at um, high school students taking science tests. And um, we looked at an entire school system where um, kids came, half the high school came from a wealthier area and the other half came from a less wealthy area. And we know there are stereotypes that if you come out of less um, wealthy households, you might not be able to succeed or be as smart. And we um, had all of the students reevaluate their anxiety in light of these stereotypes. And we showed that we could get rid of some of the gap between the kids who came from more advantaged backgrounds versus less just by doing these reevaluations. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, I want to ask you about stress. Um, now stress seems to be one of the links in the chain to causing choking. Um, does it sort of directly cause it or is it more that stress makes you more likely to do things like interfere with your working memory? Uh, what's going on in the mind that makes stress uh, make you more likely to choke? Yeah, I mean, I think you could just as easily mess yourself up by focusing on what your elbow is doing when you're playing golf as um, when, you know, everyone is watching you. So I think, you know, the, the pressures of the situation are sort of a prompt um, to, to mess yourself up. Um, but those pressures also can be different for different people. Um, for one person, having their loved ones watching them could be really a fantastic thing. And for another, it could be the worst. Um, so I think it's really important that we as individuals think about what what stresses us out and how can we fix it. For me, when I give big talks, um, you know, there's always someone in the audience frowning and there's that stresses me out if I focus on them because I immediately start interpreting it that they're not liking what I'm saying. But so I know that I need to find the person that is smiling. Nobody listening to this podcast is frowning right now. I can assure you of that. <laughs> um, I mean, and they're probably not frowning for anything I did, uh, but they're <laughs> frowning for something totally different, which is also a psychological phenomenon I talk a lot about, that we tend to interpret other people's 
reactions as some as always to us when it could be something else completely. But so going back to to the tools that I use, for example, I know I need to find the person that's smiling and nodding because that will allow me not to start focusing on everything I'm doing. Right, right. So is it that like uh, for performance, is there like a optimal level of stress? Like, could you be too relaxed or or is it just the more relaxed you are, the better you'll perform? I mean, I think that's a great point and one we don't talk about is enough. Like, you need some anxiety and stress to get out of bed in the morning or you'd be dead, right? I mean, so, <laughs> uh, and it's, and that optimal level is different for different people, which is why some of this is so hard, right? Because it's not a one size fits all. Some people actually perform better when they have a little more stress. Yeah, I, I think if I were going into like a breakdancing battle, I would want, at least my energy up. And if I were to do, you know, like a half an hour of deep breathing just before, uh, it might not be great. <laughs> right. And so it's about, it's about finding out the tools that work for you. And in choke, I actually, in many of the chapters list different techniques, cause it's kind of like you have to build your own toolbox, figuring out the level of sort of excitement or height you need in a particular situation is really important. Oh, wow. That's great. So, okay. So buy the book if you want all the strategies. Uh, but if you're if you're going to do a task that is sort of a calm task, like taking a test, relax, t relaxing before can help, right? Like deep breathing exercises? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say universal. Surely that can help. But also, I mean, for one of the techniques we talk a lot about is actually just to distract yourself a little bit. Okay. Maybe it's a crossword puzzle or listening to your favorite song, something that sort of takes you out of the moment of focusing on everything that's on the line. So breathing exercises might do it, but, um, you know, it might be reading, you know, the entertainment section of a magazine or something that takes you out of what you're about to do. And that's often the opposite of what we do, right? Kids cram right up to that moment where everyone's saying, focus, focus, focus. And there's certainly a time and a place to do that. But right before you go into competition, I would argue is not the time. I mean, that's very counterintuitive and very interesting because, you know, you might imagine somebody about to give like a speech in front of, you know, 5,000 people and they're just like playing Angry Birds on their phone just before. <laughs> no, actually, if you look at a lot of professional athletes or you hear how they get ramped up for games, oftentimes they talk about doing something distracting right before. Um, wow, okay. Or, you know, and maybe it's, it's something to keep you on task, but not thinking about what you're going to say in the third paragraph. It's thinking about the three key points you want to get across, which is somewhat similar to a swing thought, right? Something that encapsulates everything you're trying to get at, because I guarantee you're not going to remember anything else in that five minutes before. Wow, that's great. Well, okay, if anybody wants to learn more, uh, I encourage you to at least watch uh, Dr. Baylock's TED Med talk on this topic. Um, and if you want the detailed advice for the specific situations, and it sounds like everyone needs to read this to know, <laughs> her book is called Choke, What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right When You Have To. And thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Bailey. Uh, thank you for having me. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible in part by our evolved capacity for language, without which this podcast would be nothing but a collection of snorts and grunts. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.